I'll tell you, if you've spent any time with me, you have probably um, heard that I'm kind of an athlete. So I really love playing sports. I've told lots of stories about sports. But I grew up in a small town. I can only say I'm an athlete because I grew up in a small town in the panhandle of Texas. And in our small town of Groover, Texas, where we had about a population of 1,000 and our city limits was about a square mile, we did not have a lot to do. But what we did, we were very good at. And one of those things we did was sports. And so we start playing basketball probably around first or second grade. And then you just continue until you leave Groover. And I haven't stopped because I just asked for a basketball goal for Christmas and got one. (laughs) So um, we start playing. And as soon as you start in summer basketball camp, you are under the direction and the leadership of the senior um, of the varsity girls basketball coach. And our coach was Coach Steve Myatt. And Coach Myatt loved us, he loved basketball, and he loved free throws. To the point that the moment you are in high school, the summer before you enter high school, his requirement was that you were to make 3,000 free throws over the summer. Now, I did not say shoot. I said make 3,000 free throws. So depending on your skill level, you were probably shooting between 5,000 and maybe closer to 10,000 for some of us. And so, and then after we got into practices and we would start after school basketball practices, at the end of every practice, he would have one of us shoot free throws. And if that someone made her free throws, practice was over. If we missed our free throws, we ran lines in the hot gym. And so about halfway through the season, Coach Myatt's attention started turning toward me, rather focused, to the point that about halfway through the season, he was asking me at the end of every single practice to shoot the free throws. So every day at the end of practice, when I stepped up to the free throw line, the fate of my teammates' day ending depended on my ability to make those free throws. And although I hated it, my coach would say, Amy, I just see something in you and I know this is going to make you grow. Thanks, coach. That makes my teammates hating me so much better. (laughs) And so fast forward to the end of the season. We have gone undefeated in district play. We are at our final district game. We are playing our all-time rival, and I'm on the court. We have about a minute and a half left, and I'm bringing the ball down the court, and someone fouls me. And now at this point in the game, we are in the double bonus. So for those of you who are not basketball inclined, I will interpret the double bonus just means that anytime someone fouls, the other team shoots an automatic two free throws. It's not a one and one, it's not pass it in, you shoot two free throws. So I'm fouled. So I step up to the free throw line. And everyone in the gym is holding their breath because we're down by three a minute and a half left, and we really need these points. And so I was kind of a 60, 70% free throw shooter. I wasn't amazing, but I wasn't horrible. And so I knew that my teammates weren't really sure that I was going to make these free throws. 
probably the other team didn't have confidence that I was gonna make the free throws or they wouldn't have fouled me. I didn't even have the confidence that I was going to make these free throws. But Coach Myatt, Coach Myatt looked at me and he said three words. You've got this. And so I stepped up to the line and I shot the first free throw and it went in. And then I shot the second free throw and it went in and I made two of two so we're down by one. Well, what do you know, next time we have the ball, they found me again. They probably thought I couldn't do that again. So what do I do? I step up to the line. I made two of two free throws. Uh, we are now up by one point and they fouled me one more time. I ended up making six of six free throws at the end of the game. Thank you. This is the moment for every reason why I told you this story. Okay, so I made six of six free throws and because those were the only points scored in the last minute and a half, we won the game completing an undefeated district season and the crowd went wild and it was amazing. But you see, although I was the hero and got my picture in the paper and got all the accolades and still tell this story 23 years later, <laughs> there was a coach behind me. There was a coach who for years had had patience and courage and faith in each one of us. Because Coach Myatt did exactly what he was called to do, which was to train us up, to encourage us, to just live his life as a coach and invest in us. Because he did what he was called to do, I could do what I was called to do, which was make my six of six free throws. So let me ask you, are you doing what you've been called to do? You know, I'm not necessarily talking about using all of your gifts and skills specifically because we're going to talk about that at the end of this semester as we explore Esther and Jonah. What I am talking about is living out your daily lives as a faithful follower of Christ, of the calling that we have in our days in and days out. And so my question is, as you're living that out, are you fulfilling your calling as a Christ follower to exercise patience, to be courageous, and to have faith. And now the reason I mention those three very specific things is because that's what we are going to learn that Mordecai did for Esther. Mordecai had patience in the promise God had given him. Mordecai had the courage to stand boldly, and Mordecai had faith in a promise. And he helped train up Esther for such a time as this. Now, tradition will tell you, and most Christians will agree, that Esther is the hero of the story. Esther is the one who saved the day. Esther is the one who got her picture in the paper. But what about the one training her up? What about Coach Mordecai? You know, Coach Mordecai, he doesn't have a book named after him. But consider that had he not lived out his calling as a Christ follower, had he chosen to do something else and not follow the teachings of God, not done what he was called to do, 
We would still have a story of God preserving the Israelite people because God promised that he would and we can know that he is going to keep his promise. But it probably wouldn't have been in a book named Esther. So with patience and courage and faith, Mordecai did what he was called to do so that Esther could do what she was called to do. So two takeaways from today's lesson. Number one, are you called? Are you? Hold on. Are you doing what you are called to do? And number two, and probably more important, is that free throws win games. Now, you, we aren't going to talk about free throws anymore during this time, but when March Madness approaches and you start watching the teams play, you will see that this is a very solid truth, and you're welcome. So, are you doing what you're called to do? Number one, Mordecai did because he had patience. So now if you will call Jody's introduction, recall Jody's introduction of Esther, she walked us through the timeline of the Israelite history. So Mordecai was a Jew whose entire tribe and family had been exiled away from Jerusalem, the home that they had known from gener for generations. And they had been in this area of Persia for a hundred years. Now this area, they were exiled by the Babylonians, but then the Persians came in and it is now controlled by Persia. And the Persians, in a good faith measure, they told the Jews that they could go back home if they wanted to. But what we, we don't know why, we don't know how, but we know that Mordecai's family decided not to go back. They decided to stay in Susa, under, um, in the city where the Persian capital was, where King Xerxes sat on his throne in Susa. And so we aren't sure if Mordecai was born in Susa in the Persian Empire, or if he was actually exiled when the Babylonians came in. We have no idea, really. It doesn't say how old he was or when this... Um, or it just doesn't say how old he is. So, but we have enough information to know that Mordecai was living in an unknown and foreign land. And he had been there for most of, if not all of his life. And the fact is, he had also done it without some people in his life of significant importance, his aunt and uncle who had died, the ones who had birthed Esther, they had passed away. And we don't know who else was with him. The text doesn't say he could have had a lot of family, he could have had very little family. But we don't know, and so all we know is that he is in this space, in a very unknown unfamiliar space. So to catch us up, Esther, who Mordecai has raised his own, as his own daughter, Esther has been named queen. And then we began lesson two with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate when he overhears an assassination plot against the king. So let's look at Esther 2, 21 through 23. Um, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. The time the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So this is a little bit of a murky situation because Mordecai is a Jew who's in a foreign land, but we also know that he's a Jew who's on the king's advisory board. 
And we know that he's on the king's advisory board because he's sitting at the king's gate. This is not the city gate. This is the entrance to the palace. And we know that you do not sit at the king's gate if the king does not want you sitting at his gate. So we can be sure that Mordecai was one of the king's trusted advisors. And it was important for Mordecai to report this plot to Esther because if the king is murdered, it could most likely mean that either Esther would also be killed or a new king would be raised up and he would choose a new queen. So all of this would put Esther in some sort of jeopardy. And even though Mordecai saved the king's life, he received no accolades and no recognition. As a matter of fact, in a move of blatant irony, the king elevates Haman, a sworn enemy of Mordecai's own people. Has that ever happened to you? Where you do all the right things and she gets the recognition? Now, for a thousand years, Mordecai's people have believed the promise that God made to Abraham, and they would be his chosen people. They have waited through exile, upheaval, slavery, and now, now Mordecai is being overlooked and forgotten, and that doesn't feel like chosen. So God, can't you do something here? Have you ever asked that of God? Have you ever felt like you held up your end of the bargain, bargain by believing him? And then he didn't come through like you thought he was supposed to. He didn't really play fair. Perhaps that he's even forgotten about you. Mordecai has obeyed. He has done the things expected of him. He has remained faithful to God. And what? Only to have his arch nemesis promoted but we see that Mordecai is patient. And when he doesn't get the recognition he deserves, he, he doesn't set a meeting with his supervisor to go through the plan in his, his succession plan. He doesn't get on, va on Facebook and make a vague book about, I don't really want to talk about it, but I wish people would get what they deserve. <laughs> that is the laugh of familiarity right there. That is not what Mordecai did. Mordecai returned to the gate. Mordecai returned to his position, and Mordecai kept showing up. Now, can you imagine the people around him who are watching this? Can you imagine sitting there and, and seeing that Mordecai saved the king's life, he took a risk, and then the king promoted someone who hated Mordecai instead. And can you imagine what they were saying? Who is this guy? What does he believe that he can be so peaceful and at rest and patient? Mordecai, he was training others just by being Mordecai, just by being patient Patience is a difficult thing. Now, I've always believed the old adage that I'm sure y'all have heard that don't pray for patience because God might just give you something to grow that patience in you. But the fact is, whether or not we pray for it, we are waiting all the time. We are having to be patient and wait on God all of the time. 
We can trust his timing because we know that his thoughts are higher than ours and his ways are higher than ours. But every day, we're being patient and waiting on God. And when we do that, there is something happening in us. Something happening that probably we don't see, but others might. And that's hard to to understand sometimes. And when it is, I look at this print that I have hanging above my desk. It's by Ruth Chow Simons. She's a beautiful artist, an artist of Grace Lace. And her, it says, you don't have to be blooming to be growing. Praise God. <laughs> you don't have to be blooming to be growing. And probably there are people who are around Mordecai who, who perhaps saw that, that he was blooming, but I'm sure he didn't feel like it. I'm sure he felt like a dormant plant in the winter, but he was growing because God never stops. So Mordecai was waiting, which was exactly what he was called to do. Are you being patient and waiting on God? Are you doing what you're called to do? So Mordecai had patience. He also had courage. Let's look at Esther 3, verses 1 and 2. Um, So after three events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. And then Mordecai would not kneel down, and pay him honor. So, Mordecai reports the murder plot. The king is grateful. Mordecai's nemesis is promoted, and the king tells everyone that they must bow down to Haman. And what does Mordecai choose? He chooses courage, he chooses bravery, and he chooses not to bow down to Haman. Now, when you put it this way, I don't know if I would bow down either, (laughs) Now, all religion aside, I mean, Mordecai's like, I'm the one that saved you, and you want me to bow down to him? Or maybe it's that Mordecai's saying, I worship the one true God, and even though my life will be threatened and I will be alienated, I will still bow down to none other than God. So here's the thing. I don't know Mordecai's motivation. We will never know. I'm sure it was probably a little bit of both, because Mordecai was human, And he still had emotions and feelings that were human. But the fact is, is that Mordecai believed in a God who made a promise a thousand years before, and he wasn't about to let the promotion of an enemy stop that belief. It's like Daniel, who stood up to Nebuchadnezzar, and he was safe in the lion's den. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not let their faith fit in with society, and they were safe in a den in a furnace of fire. It's like Noah who who obeyed God and built a giant boat and who everybody laughed at, but God delivered him from the flood. Mordecai had the courage to stand and deliver literally when he knew his life was in danger. Do you? Are you willing to stand when your truth is challenged? When others are seeking revenge and payback, are you offering grace? 
when it's more comfortable to judge and to criticize and see all the wrong things and instead just turn and love unconditionally. When it's easier to gossip and chat about someone's difficult situation, are you physically going to them and showing them that you care? It's like Joshua and Caleb, who were part of the 12 spies who went into the promised land. And when 10 came back and said, it's way too scary, we can't obey God, Joshua and Caleb were the minority report and who stood and said, God is for us, we must obey. And because of that minority choice that they stood, just the two of them, they were the ones out of an entire generation that did not die in the wilderness. God delivered them because they stood firm in their truth. And what did God say to Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Are you courageous? Are you doing what you have been called to do so that others can do what they are called to do? In other words, are you being Mordecai for someone else? So Mordecai had courage, and lastly, Mordecai had faith. So the story continues. Because of Mordecai's refusal to bow and Haman's bad guy status, we learn that Haman will not have this. Haman is the opposite of courage. He is out for revenge and big revenge. Killing Mordecai was not enough for Haman. He wanted everybody dead. And so Haman goes to the king, and he does some finagling. He does some fancy talk. He throws some money at the king. And by the end of this conversation, the king has agreed to let Haman wipe out an entire people group. And so we see that Mordecai goes to the king's gate. He wears sackcloth and ashes. He tears his clothes. And Esther sends him some clothes to fix the problem. (laughs) Now, we never... I know we never do that. We never try to cover up a problem with a cute outfit. (laughs) I know we don't fix, advise, and rescue to avoid the entire situation. I know we don't do that, so I'm glad we don't have to cover it. So, (sighs) Mordecai refuses these clothes. He's like, Esther, you don't get it. He sends them back, and he sends a copy of Haman's edict to Esther, and he commands her, you got to do something. Go to the king. And, Morde- and Esther replies and lets him know that she is in danger. It's not safe. She can't go to the king or it will be her life. He has not called for her in a month, and this is absolutely not the right time. Mordecai. Let's look at Esther 4, 11 through 14. I think you know what's coming. So all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This moment is the pinnacle of Mordecai's faith. 
Up until this point, we have seen him be patient and be courageous, but, but he still kind of has his hands in the situation. You see, he knew the promises that God had made to the Jewish people, but he was still very involved in helping God. And he was trying to fix the situation. But then I read this passage, and every time I read this section, I see Mordecai almost take a physical step back and put his hands in his pocket. And he says, I know that deliverance will come. And Esther, do you want to be a part of it? You may perish, I may perish, but deliverance will come. You see, at this moment, Mordecai knew that having faith would not keep him from pain and suffering. He knew that faith in God would not exclude him from death. When God said that he would keep his promise and preserve the Israelites, he did not promise that Mordecai would go unharmed. You see, it looks like this hurricane of emotions and fear going, I don't know what we're going to do. Our lives are in danger. Everything's so difficult. This is a hard situation. And it is this hurricane of all the things that they're experiencing. But you see what faith does? Faith brings you to the eye of the storm. And in the eye of the storm, there is peace. Faith doesn't stop the hard winds from beating up on you. But faith gives you peace. And Mordecai can take his hands off the situation in the knowledge that deliverance will come, believing that, is for, that it is for their good and for God's glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is doing things for your good and for his glory? You know, we, it's hard to always believe that, but according to his providence, according to God's unceasing activity, he never stops working things out for our good and for his glory. But keep in mind, our definition of good is not always God's definition of good, right? This is what author Jerry Bridges says in Trusting God about God's providence. He says, note the twofold objective of God's providence, his own glory and the good of his people. These two objectives are never antithetical. They are always in harmony with each other. God never pursued his glory at the expense of the good of his people, nor does he ever seek our good at the expense of his glory. He has designed his eternal purpose so that his glory and our good are inextricably bound together. If we are going to learn to trust God in adversity, we must believe that just as certainly as God will allow nothing to subvert his glory, he will allow nothing to spoil the good he is working out in and for us. That our good and his glory are inextricably linked. And we can trust him because God knows what he's doing. Now, for generations, the hope the Israelites had was in the Abrahamic covenant, that they would be God's chosen people. Mordecai lived that out in faith. He believed that promise. Mordecai did what he was called to do so that others could do what they were called to do. But what about you? What do you have faith in? Do you have faith in your ability to control the situation? Do you have faith in what this hurricane of emotions is telling you? 
Or do you have faith in God's ability to orchestrate all of this? Mordecai believed a thousand-year-old promise that they were God's chosen people. And then God, for you and me, doubled down on that promise. Listen to how Timothy Cain describes it. When Satan stood before God asking for the right to destroy his people like they deserved because of their disobedience, God said, no, no, you cannot have my people. And for a moment, Satan couldn't believe what he heard because it seemed like God wasn't being just. God's people deserve destruction. If God were going to be just, then he couldn't simply say no. And here we begin to see God's logic, which is deeper than anything we could ever ask or imagine. Here, God, just, God doesn't just tell Satan no. Instead, he takes his son, his only son whom he loves, and he says to Satan, here, take him and do to him what seems good to you. For my son has willingly chosen to take the punishment that my people deserve. Where King Xerxes takes money to destroy an innocent people, God gives his only son in order to save guilty sinners. To save you and me, the guilty sinners. God doubled down on his promise when he sent his son Jesus. And because of his death and sacrifice, we are given the promise that God will always be with us from now to eternity and he will work all things together for our good and his glory and we can have faith. We can have peace in the midst of a hurricane. Brennan Manning says that faithfulness requires risking everything on Jesus. And I feel like that's a pretty good risk to take. Do you have faith? Are you doing what you have been called to do so that others can do what they are called to do? Now, I want to get real for a minute. I want to get really practical and tell you our actions matter to our own integrity and our own obedience and our own calling but our actions are not an essential part of God's plan. If I had not have been six of six on my free throws, Coach Maya would have found someone else to make the points because he, is, he believed in a promise of winning. <laughs> had um, Esther not stood up and been courageous, God would have found someone else to preserve his people because God keeps his promise. You see, he can use someone besides me to accomplish his purpose. But what I do matters. You see, if I wasn't teaching today, someone else would be. But then I would know that I hadn't been obedient. I hadn't done what I was called to do. And if we aren't willing to do what we are called to do, then that diminishes the very brutal, horrible work the very redeeming, beautiful work that Jesus did on the cross for you and me. So where has God placed you and why has he placed you there? Who around you needs to be coached up for just a time as this? Are there kids in Townsville Elementary? Are there women in Valiant Hearts? Are there refugee families in your neighborhood who need you to have patience and courage and faith to do what you've been called to do so that they can do what they've been called to do? 
And it doesn't have to be perfect, friends. Barry tells our staff all of the time that serving is not about our competence, it is about our willingness. Are you willing? Why has God placed you right here, right now? You see, when we obey, others obey, and the world is changed. You know, when Esther stepped up to the free throw line, I mean, when she stepped up to the king, (laughs) the whole place held their breath, wondering if she would make it. And next week, Alice will tell us whether or not the crowd went wild. Are you doing what you have been called to do so that others can do what they've been called to do? Let's pray. Um, Thank you, Lord, that you never stop pursuing us, that your ways are higher than ours and we can trust you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and the promise that his death and resurrection brings. It's in his name we pray, amen.